Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 187. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest, John W. Evans, is here. He's the author of The Fight Journal, which is our uh, chapbook that came with a spring issue. He'll be here in about 10 minutes, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do it because we love poetry, and I know you too. That's why you're here listening. And if you're listening, please do click the like button and share, subscribe, ring the bell for notifications. Anything you haven't done yet, please do because that helps poetry spread around the internet, which is always appreciated. That's all we're trying to do here is uh, get more people promoting the practice of poetry um, and you spread poems as much as we can. So do your part and share and like and click things because that's how the algorithms know that you like it and then they share it to more people and then more people get more poetry in their lives and the whole world is a better place and all you have to do is like click stuff so go ahead uh now we're going to start out as we always do with um the sunday news poet poem or news poem poet i guess you'd say and uh here she is allison davis back again who was here just a couple months ago hey allison how you doing Hello. In this moment, all is well. Thanks so much, Tim, for having me. That's great. Yeah. So you've got out of the airport. I know that. I did. <laughs> and now, um, and so you have a new poem this week, which was just one of those, it was sort of an enigmatic poem that just made me sort of think and reread. And I enjoyed rereading it a whole bunch of times to the point where I was like, well, this is a poem I want to share with everybody this week. So tell us a little bit about how the poem came to be um, and, and, you know, the new story that inspired it. It's true that this poem is more enigmatic than the types of poems I normally write. Usually I have a lot more narrative or kind of imagist style, but this one I was really playing with the unknown because that was part of the news story, that these mysterious things in the sky and people didn't know what they were and uh, streaks of light and coming up with all sorts of stories about what they could possibly be. So I decided to also go into that place of making up stories, although I work just kind of with one image or one um, imagination at a time and tried to actually not create a story. So the poem itself, um, in the writing process, I was inspired by a prompt in Tony Hoagland's book, The Art of Voice. And um, I let myself really just try to... um, Uh, go into the most imaginative, the least least propositional content that I could think of for Mm -hmm. the moment. And it ended up feeling so different to write this kind of poem and to be playful and not try to prove anything, not try to demonstrate anything, but actually really be deep in my imagination. So I loved the chance to do that. Yeah, very cool. Well, let's hear it. Then we'll talk a little bit more about it. Mystery Light. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Sure. Mystery Light. Have we finally become a visionless people? We confuse a self-combusting debris for stars and blame everything on our earthly enemies. Sometimes the light is nothing more than space junk burning up in the atmosphere. Restoration takes many forms. An eclipse is also a story of molting. The sky gazing continues. Sometimes the visitors tell stories of coyotes and devotives and sobriety whose light is the same as its ugliness. 
They returned from the faraway camps carrying baskets woven with light. The light is more than skin stretched over the surface of a galaxy. The stories are less than the future on an old man's tongue. The earth is a house of stories and light. Yeah, thanks so much. That was um, Mystery Light, once again, by Allison Davis. And the thing that just stands out most, well, two things. There's there's the way that the lines leap from one to another. Like, there's a sort of a disconnected, there's just like these huge gaps that you jump between one sentence to another sentence. And you mentioned at the at the bottom of the poem, you, you thanked a friend for helping with the first read, Iman Hassan. Um, so, so what was the poem like? How did it come out in, in the first draft of it? And then how different was this? So this makes me wonder. Yeah. So, um, I, so I was playing around with this poem, uh, prompt and I have a student I'm helping. Um, he's a senior in high school for a senior project. Um, I'm helping him write a book of poetry and I had pinned him as this abstract kind of poet. And I was forcing him to do all these image-based prompts and then I read actually all of his drafts and he was so much more than what I had pegged him to be so I was like I want to go right into these big assertions I don't need to make you delay on images anymore let's blow the whole thing open so I I had written this poem and I sent it to another person who's been in this writing group with us Iman and um she said that there was a the middle line of the poem, she said it's kind of like an axis. And so she flipped the order. And uh, so that initially the visionless people was the last line and the earth is a story of house. Uh, the earth is a house of stories and light was the first line. And once she flipped it and I could see it, it had a totally different feeling when it ended in this open place. Mm. And then it allowed me to see where the line breaks could create sort of these interesting last words uh, where then you breathe before the next line. And I just, I loved the way it felt and I loved the way it sounded. Yeah, that's a great description. And one of the things uh, on the critique of the week that we do every Friday um, that I wish I did more of, I'm not really good at it like that, is switching the order of things and moving whole stanzas around. And, and if you can imagine, like looking at the poem, I'll put it up on screen one more time, but um, if you imagine the earth is a house of stories and light as the first poem and then ending on have we finally become a visionless people, there's really such a different effect when you think about it that way. I mean, it, it feels, even though it ironically ends in a question, it feels so much like I have a conclusion. Whereas like... It felt heavy to yeah, me too exactly. that, that mm -hmm. in the end, actually, that wasn't the feeling that I took away from writing the poem or contemplating these lights in the sky. It actually felt like an invitation and not like a, well, we're devoid of vision. Yeah. Like it was the writing the poem almost helped me regain or like redeem the, the, the ability to create these kinds of stories about light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I love the line too about um, sobriety whose light is the same as its ugliness. I mean, it's such a great way to think about it that I'll think about every time I think about that. Um, so, and great poem. Thanks for sharing that as always, yeah. Allison. Good to see you again. Congratulations. Yeah, I hear so you have a, a new book coming out and a chapbook too. It's just uh, some good news over the last couple of months since we saw you last. So congratulations yeah. on that too. Thank you. Yeah. Well, take care and we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, you too. Okay. Have a good Thanks night. Too. Yep. Bye. Bye. That was Allison Davis with uh, Mystery Light, Sunday's poem on Randall.com. 
Now we're going to take a quick break and get to our main guest, John W. Evans. Most of you probably read his book, so we'll hear his perspective on the poems and hear the poem in his voice, which would be a lot of fun. So sit tight, and I will be right back with uh, our main guest, John W. Evans. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Like I said, today's guest is John W. Evans. John is the winner of the 2022 Rattle Chapbook Pies, the last of the three winners that we published um, for the Fight Journal, which is the book right here that came with your spring issue. He's also the author of Should I Still Wish, a memoir, Young Widower, also a memoir, and The Consolations, poems. Um, his books have won prizes, including the Peace Corps Writer's Book Prize, a Ford Reviews Book Prize, the River Teeth Book Prize, the Swatooth Poetry Prize and the Trio Award, um, Should I Still Wish, is published in the American Live series. John's currently the Phyllis Draper Lecturer in Nonfiction at Stanford University, where he is previously a Jones Lecturer and a Wallace Stegner Fellow. He lives in Northern California with his three young sons. And here he is, John W. Evans. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much. It's, it's really fascinating, especially because um, this is the time of the year I'm reading the chapbooks for, for next year. And, um, and so, you know, thinking back to the time where we read your book for the first time and then, you know, putting the book all together and then having it here and meeting it actually in the flesh for the first time or, or well, the, the modern facsimile anyway, um, yeah. is really neat to see us. So thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me follow Allison too. What a, what a beautiful poem to follow. Yeah. 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 She's great. And she had two books accepted in the last couple of months. So maybe we'll have her on as a guest too. Um, but you want to start out with a, a poem, not your own. So uh, let's do that. Uh, what do you want to read? So this is a poem called Moths. Uh, it's uh, from Van Bolin's uh, poetry from her book, In a Time of Violence. Um, uh, it's a poem I love, uh, and it's populated with imagery of um, transformation and change uh, and uh, things fading. And the sort of the central figure of the poem is a, is a shadow uh, by which the narrator measures the, the passing of time uh, as her children grow older, which I thought, uh, in addition to just greatly admiring Van uh, and her poetry, um, I thought complemented the, the fight journal well. So this is called Moths. Tonight the air smells of cut grass. Apples rust on the branches. Already summer is a place mislaid between expectation and memory. This has been a summer of moths. Their moment of truth comes well after dark. Then they reveal themselves at our window ledges and sills as a pinpoint, a glimmer. The books I look up about them are full of legends. Ghost swift moths with their dancing assemblies at dusk. Their courtship swarms. How some kinds may steer by the moon. The moon is up. The back windows are wide open. Mid-July light fills the neighborhood. I stand by the hedge. Once again, they are near the windowsill, fluttering past the fuchsia and the lavender, which is knee-high and too blue to warn them they will fall down without knowing how or why what they steered by became suddenly what they crackled and burned around. They will perish. I am perishing on the edge and at the threshold of the moment all nature fears and tends toward the stealing of the light. Ingenious facsimile. And the kitchen bulb, which beckons them, makes my child's shadow longer than my own. 
And that was um, Evan Boland from New and Collected Poems, uh, Moths. And I should say that we're sharing that poem courtesy of this website, which is uh, dragonflypoetryandprolixity.blogspot.com, which is just where it came up on Google. Probably posted without permission, but uh, but we, we love poetry, so that's fine with us. Um, so, so John, I, I wanted to ask, like, why did you want to start out with uh, someone else's poem? Because it's when you, when you said you, you wanted to, and you've seen people do readings like that, I wondered, maybe I should make everybody do that. So, so is there a reason I should maybe make everybody do that? I, I think it acknowledges a debt, maybe, you know, that we all mm-hmm. feel we have to, to poets who, who make us feel ambitious. I had a, um, a teacher once say to me, um, I said how frustrated I was that the the poetry I, write, I wrote, you know, would never be as good as X. And, you know, and and, uh, and he said, you know, well, try not to think of it as, um, as jealousy. Try to think of it as ambition. And I think that's such a great way to think about poetry, which is that there are these North stars that go before us and who inspire us and who write these things and um, and I think it's into those traditions that we try to write our own work. How, however, successfully, who, who knows? We'll let the uh, the next generation judge that, I guess. But um, but yeah, and, and I, I just like the idea of acknowledging the the the, the poets we love and the poems we love. Um, I also feel like when I see other writers do that, there is invariably some poem or poet I've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Just makes me so excited to to discover a new writer, a new poem. So yeah, yeah. well, it was perfect with the Irish poet poems issue that we just put out to go along with your chat book, even though exactly. it's just a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, but also, yeah. you know, I always think of poetry as sort of a. There's this picture in my head of it as being this like huge dinner table conversation, you know, and everybody sort of pulls up a seat and is you know trying to participate in this like grand dialogue of like human being that we talk about through poetry, and so having other people's poems included is really a, a helpful thing, I think. But but let's do one of your poems. So uh, how do you want to start I, out? I think in that analogy, I always feel like I'm sitting at the kids' table, like I'm right <laughs> next to the main table. But I'll soon, soon I'll be invited up. You know, well, I don't know. I mean, you won the rattle chapbook prize, so well, that's true. Maybe I that think, was the maybe they, they slide the chair out a little bit for you then. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, well, yeah. Well, should I uh, should I just start with the first poem in the in yeah. the collection? yeah? Yeah, okay. it's such an interesting book because it centers around this long poem. Um, but the poems that surround it are, are unique and interesting, too, in their own ways that are very different from, uh, from the main central poem. So it's a, fun, it's a fun way to start the book. I love the structure. You actually we, you asked if I thought maybe we should only do the long poem. Do you remember that? Yeah, and, I do. And, and I Literally. love the way it's framed by these two other poems, too. So let's, let's do the first poem, Fight, to start with. Yeah. Yeah. So this is called Fight. Pick up, I said. And talk to me, you said. Come home and talk to me, I said. Not until we can talk, you said. What, I said. Like fucking human beings, you said. I won't talk to you, I said. Until you come home, you said. I won't call back, I said. Then don't, you said. I can't come home until we talk, you said. Who does this, I said. Talk to me, I said. No one does this, you said. Someone is doing it, you said, right now. You said, people don't, you said, act like this. I said, I'm trying to talk to you. I said, just come home, I said. Can't we talk, you said. Come home first, I said. I left home, you said, so we can talk, you said. No one talks, you said. Not like this, I said. Just talk to me, I said. I am, I said, talking to you, you said. What did I just say, I said. It matters how you say it, you said. This is how I said it, I said. Pick up, you said. Come home. Yeah, that's a beautiful poem, capturing that that feeling of a, of a marital fight, which is, um, of course, what the poem, what the book's about. And as Gwendolyn Soper says, I love the repetition of said, you said, and, and it, it really does. That becomes sort of a litany and, and a, a way of the way we think of our relationships, too, maybe, you know, is like a series of, of things we've said 
not even to each other, but almost at each other, you know? And, and so a really great way to start out the book. Um, I wanted to ask, because you had so much success um, in creative nonfiction. Um, you have the two books are memoirs. They've won so many awards and, you know, are well, you know, received and, and have good press runs and all that stuff. Why did you choose to do this, um, cover this topic in poems instead of prose? I never thought I would write uh, a poem again after I wrote the the second memoir, especially. I, I had been on a run of um, of writing prose for probably six or seven years at that point. And... Um, and I, uh, I tried to write some of this initially as prose. Um, I had a, at dinner with a friend who who made the point. They said, you know, if you write a third memoir, you'll have the exact same number of memoirs as Winston Churchill. And so I thought, well, okay, maybe a third memoir is is premature. But uh, but you know, to, to to be more serious about it, I uh, I couldn't find the the energy of the voice in prose. It just wasn't working in prose. And so I had these blocks of very unformed writing and I started to think about them um, as poems. And what, what, what would I, what would I remove? What would I shape? How, how would I uh, get things narrowed down to some kind of either lyric essence or voice? Uh, and then I just felt they had this urgency. And then uh, when I started to get that confidence back, I wrote other poems and I, I rediscovered, you know, I was trained as a poet. I spent many years writing poetry, having all my poems rejected, you know, sending them out in broad, 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 broad swaths. Uh, and I did find early, uh, earlier in my life that poetry was a pretty good way to tap into really raw emotion. And um and so I, I kind of rediscovered that that interest, that ability, uh, writing about this this subject matter. So so it's it seemed to dovetail pretty quickly into okay, what what do I want to do here with poems? Um, and you know the, the the problem with the advantage of prose maybe sometimes is that you can get exposition into a piece of writing without the the quality of the writing suffering. Sometimes it's harder to do that in a poem. But the, I think the advantage of the poem was was distilling things down to an essence, um, an image, a voice, an idea, uh, and then uh, not having to fill in quite so much context around that. So that that that's where I found myself moving back to poetry, and now now I'm kind of writing uh, mostly poems again. So I don't I don't know how it ended up that way, but I've I've ended up somehow working in these two these two genres uh, pretty consistently. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, what is it like to put together a prose memoir? Because I think that's something that a lot of people probably listening or like have thought about maybe, but have not, you know, it, it just seems very daunting. But but right. is the process of like narrowing it down around themes, is there like a poetry to that? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, is there a way that you write and then is it sort of like a, a fractal version of a poem where it's like, you know, you're 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 shaping it but at the length of like 200 pages or whatever it is. Yeah. I, it's interesting. You know, the way I, I don't know how to write a memoir. I, I wasn't ever taught how to write uh, a prose memoir, but, but what I did when I, um, when I started writing young widow, especially, you know, I had written a series of um, elegies for my first wife who passed. And, uh, and I was writing those on kind of a monthly or a couple of months, you know, it was, it was sort of the, the, the Thing that kind of grounded me to the world for a little while was writing those poems um but i reached a point in my life where, where i really wasn't sure why i was still writing elegies because my my 
personal life had moved forward. I was remarried. I had children. And I didn't understand why I kept returning to this this form. And and particularly, you know, the elegy is 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 as we know, always going to do three things. It's going to acknowledge the loss. It's going to um, honor honor the dead, and it's going to instruct the living. And and I just started to think, you know, had I had I exhausted this form, and then maybe was I was I uh, had I exhausted my voice? Did I have nothing really new to say about these things? And a uh, um, Van Boland, whose poem I read, actually, she said to me, well, why don't you try writing a prose memoir? And you can just put that to the test. And if it's true, well, then you, you're you done. And if it's not true, maybe you have something new to say. And um, so the the first part of Young Widower I wrote was, um, was basically in response to this question, you know, am I still writing elegy or am I uh, being opportunistic about a subject matter that I don't have anything more to say about? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really generative because in asking this question of whether I was writing elegy or am I writing narrative, um, I found myself revisiting parts of uh, of my life with Katie that I hadn't written about before. And I, I didn't really come to an answer to that question, but that question generated four or 5,000 words. Uh, and when I finished that, I thought, okay, well, what's another question I have? And the next question was, you know, it's been, it had been years since Katie had passed. Uh, why did I still have such a hard time with sleep? Mm-hmm. So I wrote an essay about that. And, you know, and, and I started to just pose these questions to myself over, over a short period of time. So the advice I always give when I teach memoir, people ask about writing memoirs. I say, you know, if you just start with questions that are generative, that are, aren't terminal. So, no, you know, not like how much you know does a hamster weigh or something. But if you start with questions that are truly generative, you know, why am I still writing about this? Why does it interest me? Am I a phony? You know, you can use those to to write through the process, uh, and it, it tends to be really generative. And I probably had eleven questions or so uh, related to that. You know, one of the questions was why had I never written about the circumstances of Katie's death, uh, and that was really really hard to, mm-hmm. to to write toward because it involved revisiting things I didn't want to want to think about, much less feel about again. Um, but as I did that, I was able to get something new on the page. And I, I came to the end of it. And, the, you know, the last chapter of that book is a, is a long reflection on the book of Job. And um, and it, it, it it's another kind of authenticity questioning chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, you know, I always say, you know, start with one question, answer it. Ask another question, answer it. And then you string those questions together. Don't worry about chronology. Don't worry about structure. I think the thing we've borrowed from the poem as you know, Tim, I'm sure there's there's uh, a lot of essays and, and memoir being written by poets now. And what we're doing is we're using the lyric form. We're using the associative form. We're, we're writing according to our tangents and our voices and the things that interest us. And we're piecing, piecing those together. And, and none of us have, have you know, degrees. And I think they call it narratology now, narrative training. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but we're writing from a, 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 a posture of authenticity and, and lyric approach. And that that has generated no small number of beautiful memoirs um, mm-hmm. that work in that way. So again, that idea of tradition, you know, and, and, and poets who've, who've done that well, there's, whether it's, you know, uh, Jeanette Winterson or Van Boland, or there's just a, uh, even Adrian Rich, you know, these, these great memoirs that are, are organized on that associative structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, we, we never actually talked about this, but in the book, in the fight journal, there's this section where you mention Katie's death. Um, and, you know, just for everybody who doesn't know, she was mauled to death by a bear, while hiking. And um, 
There is this, and so I thought a lot about that actually, because there's a way that that story—it's almost like it's like a like a double take moment when you get to it. You're like, wait, what? Is he like literal about that? And then you realize that it's true. You know, looking up and googling, and and then I was thinking like, should we delete that from the thing so it doesn't distract from the content of the book, right. or um, or do we expand on it more so people know you know for sure what you're talking about? We don't have that like double take thing, and um, and I decided it was the perfect way you'd handled it, which is to mention it sort of casually. And then people can dig into it more, but it's it, so it wouldn't like overwhelm the rest of the book. Is that something that you struggled with? Because it's a, I mean, it's such a story that it's just a shocking thing to think about and, and imagine your experience with that. Um, is it something that you thought about not including in the book? Yeah, and I th- I think the way I included it was as as glan- glancing and, and acknowledgement as I could. I mean, there, there's the part of that poem where I'm I'm sitting with Katie in a dream. I, I, I have not had a lot of dreams about Katie. Katie's the name of my first wife. Uh, I've not had a lot of dreams about her, but I'm sitting with her on the side of a hill and it, it's all very, and that was, that was literally a dream. I just woke up and wrote down. Um, but that dream, you know, something that continues to feel unresolved in my life is I think when in other, other people can speak to whether this is true or not, this is entirely my perspective in my life is that, you know, you start to delineate time um, according to sort of before and after the, these really formative events, especially something that's both tragic and traumatic, and they almost start to feel like different lives. And then, you know, the, you you are the coherent center of that. But the the analogy I like is, you know, it's almost like two people are walking on either side of a river and you're just talking back and forth with, with yourself about, you know, these different aspects, these different parts of your life. Um, and I feel like I'm always sort of in conversation with, you know, if I acknowledge Katie's death um, and really spend time with her memory, and I, which I do quite a fair amount, am I uh, not really staying present in this life? But then, of course, if I'm staying present in this life, am I, am I not honoring her memory and respecting her memory? And so uh that literally comes up in in the poem where i have this dream and then i realize where the dream is set of course and then uh you know that seemed like the right way to acknowledge the circumstances of her death and the moment of her death which is i think in some ways probably fundamental to how the second marriage succeeded and failed um, so that was, that was in there as, as kind of a foundational piece that probably, I, I don't know how, I, I don't know how I could have honestly accounted for, uh, the fight journal mm-hmm. without, uh, the poem, without, uh, acknowledging the, 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 the timing and the sequence of events. So it, it had to be in there. Yeah. And, and it's, but, but, it's, it was... but it's hard to not then drop seven pages of prose know, exactly. about the event itself because you, I, I want to, and I. I don't want anything to be misunderstood, but that's, I guess, the risk you take writing mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. Well, I spent a lot of time, like I spent like a week or so, you're just thinking about that. Like every time I look at the book, I'd think like, do do I do I suggest something different or, or do not? And, and I read more about what happened and, and you know, what the memoirs were about and like, and, and I think this is the best way to handle it because it was important to acknowledge it. That's a, a really significant piece of the, the second marriage that we're writing about. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so I think you handled it perfectly, but it took me a long time to, to figure out you were right, I guess we should say. Oh, well, I don't, yeah, well, that's, thank you. I'm, I, you're, 
agreement helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and to the point where I didn't even bring it up, but, but I thought about it. Um, but yeah. let's read some more poems. Do you want to, do you want to read, start with a fight journal? Um, yeah. Is there a section you'd, you'd particularly like to hear more than another? Or I, um, I'm not trying to put it on you, but it's, it's such a long poem. And I know we joked about, I would say there's two more poems left and then I'd start reading the 34 sections of uh -huh. the fight journal. Anyway, yeah, is there a I, section? Left? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe start at the beginning, maybe the first two or something. To, sure. You know, for that the first great. one. Yeah. Okay. The fight journal. The psychiatrist listens and then says, I'm handling things about as well as anyone in my situation could. I'm remarkably accepting of what is happening, she says, and that's good. I'm deriving a sense of self from my responsibilities. I write that down for later. And people don't always do that. I'm working, I'm sleeping. I'm even reorganizing the house. More than anything else, clearly, I'm thinking about the boys. I'm enjoying my time with the children. And people don't always do that either. The day my wife moved out, I hired Christopher to put together new furniture. Two bright yellow bookshelves, the weird glass cabinet thing, the front table, a small side table, the tall bookshelf I bought to make a comic book library and hold the new PlayStation. I was trying to make the house less fancy. I wanted to replace my wife's antique furniture on the cheap. Really, I wanted the boys to come home from school and see that things were still in order at dad's house. I was jealous, a little threatened even, when they saw mom's new place and loved it, the tiny duplex next to the Safeway in our old neighborhood. It had vines growing over the walls and seeds she had already swept to the corners of the patio under a rusted grill. The boys' beds were bunked. She had painted them yellow and green. Well, dad, Walt said, after finding the little courtyard where he could practice soccer, at least you get the bedroom all to yourself now. And those are the first two poems from, uh, or first sections from the title poem, uh, The Fight Journal, which is the long central poem to this really interestingly structured book um, about um, you know, the way a divorce breaks down. Um, so, so how much, you know, you know, we can talk, as we'll read more poems, we'll talk more about the, your specific, I mean, this is analysis kind of of your own divorce, um, but how much have you thought about divorce in general? Um, as a consequence of, of this, you know, thing that you've gone through, um, you know, I think the I don't know the numbers. I should have looked them up before the show, but like the majority of marriages end in divorce at this point. Um, and you know, talking to divorce to people, so many people say congratulations now, which is interesting. Um, yes, no, no one congratulated me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, maybe, yeah. so, so I don't know. Like, why do you think you know that? Why do you think the rate of divorce has gone up so much? Is that something you've thought about? I, I'm sure I have theories. I, I can't. Uh, part of writing this poem was trying to uh, trying to get into you know wh what it means to own own how the marriage fails, and and I think that as as much as uh, as easy as as it is to assign blame, I mean it's it's something that that is that is owned together, and I think that you know there, there's two parts to that. There's the reaction to it. Uh, which is individual, and then there's the the collective experience of it. And and when you have kids, it it has to be it has to be collective, and you have to account for it, you know, as as um as a family, because you're you're going to be a family living in two homes from now on. Um, I I can tell you that the a great exercise in self loathing for those who would like to practice it when a divorce is happening is is just try to Google the divorce rate because you know depending on on 
the political bias of whichever website you find, you know, you'll find a number from anywhere from 80% of marriages end in divorce to 12% of marriages end in divorce. And then you can break it down according to demographics and, and it just becomes um, a, a mess of numbers. I, I can say uh, I was the, the the first divorce in my family and, and having grown up, you know, Catholic and Midwestern, it was, um, it was hard to not feel that myself, not my family was wonderful, but it's hard to not feel that myself, according to my own culture and experience, to not feel that as as a kind of failure. And I think that the failure was compounded by a very unrealistic sense I had that having um, having suffered through a, a, a pretty profound loss, uh, there would be an ease to the rest of life. Um, and and that you know that was that was a pretty foolish way to to think about the world and think about life. But um. But I, I certainly clung to it. Um, so yeah. So I don't. I don't. I, I don't have a lot of friends who've gotten divorced. I think I'm still kind of the redheaded stepchild of the social world uh, around my school and that. But um, or my my kids' school and all that. But but it's it's uh, it's certainly less of a taboo than it was when uh, uh, when I was a kid. So that in that way, I think it is it is uh, seeming more and more common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, you know, I always think of those studies that that how arranged marriages have a higher happiness, um, you know, component to them and surveys and things like that. And there's a way that like, because divorce is possible, that you're always thinking of the possibility. And then that becomes something right. that it becomes a possibility because you're thinking about the possibility and, and it, it sort of builds on that. And I wonder if that's the main thing that, it, that causes it to increase. Um, I think also also maybe the expectation, you know, I, I, I lived in Bangladesh for two years, so I'm not an expert in anything, but I, but I had some experience living in a culture where arranged marriages were the norm. And I think where you start from is such a different place, because I think that and I, I'm as guilty of this as anyone to feel, you know, you project fantasies onto both another person and onto a situation. Mm-hmm. And it's really not their responsibility to to carry those fantasies or, you know what I mean? And, and you, you have to uh, make a space for the fact that like everything, people change and, uh, and you grow and, and some couples, you know, my, my folks have been married for 50 odd years and they have grown together across that time. My brother is the same way. And you, you see marriages around you where people really do make those choices and, and make those decisions to grow together. And then, and then some people don't also. And, and, uh, Again, it's, yeah, there, there's a lot of choice involved there, you know. And, and the other thing that, that I always think about is the way that, you know, so much of our, our media and our literature is like the, the courtship phase, you know. There's there's so right. little literature about how to make a marriage work, you know. It's always in happily ever after, and you just assume that once you find the magical, uh, you know, partner that you've been searching for through the whole movie or book or whatever, that that's the end of it. And really, that's like the beginning of the the ways you have to interlock and, and, and figure it out. And so we, there's no, there's very little, I mean, thinking about, about way, you know, just, just literature and things like that, that are about marriage itself. It, it's such an uncommon topic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the poems, uh, Marta Tikkanen's poem, which, which I talked about a little bit, uh, you know, uh, love story of the century is, is a, a real precedent for me of a poem about, um, a marriage that's failing and a divorce that follows. And um, that that poem is is was, you know, uh, taboo shattering when it was published, not not in the United States, by the way, but when it was when it was originally published, it was taboo shattering. And then it came here in translation and, and performed that same function. So 
you know, there, there's both the fantasy of what uh, of what a marriage might be, what a relationship might be. And then there's there's the fantasy of how we talk about them and how we how we speak about them in public spaces, too, which is um, uh, easy to do when you're assigning uh, blame, hard to do when you're trying to honestly account for failure, you know, your own failures. Yeah. Well, uh, let's keep reading uh, poems from the book. What do you want to read next? Uh, let's read. Um, you know, I was. How about number eight? Just because I think this follows uh, section eight from from the the longer poem. It's on page fourteen of the okay. book. Divorce changed how I thought about my first marriage too. I missed Katie without complication. In a dream, we talked for the first time since she had died. She told me it was all fine. She wasn't mad at me for remarrying. Nothing was meant to last forever. She was wearing a blue windbreaker, and we were sitting beside a lake, watching my second wife's family walk up a hill. It didn't occur to me until a few hours after waking that this was where she had died. I got mad at myself, my brain, my heart, for co-opting the place as consolation. You can't control a dream, the psychiatrist said, but I was pretty sure I could. I dreamt of Katie, what, two or three times since she died? When she went to college, Katie received her Catholic confirmation. I started going to church after my second wife left and praying the rosary daily, a kind of transactional deal probably that I wanted to strike with God, though the comforts of prayer continued long after the divorce was finalized. That first week, I turned off my phone and sat at the confessional grate. It was a Saturday, miserable and hot. No one else was in the church. We get a lot of widows, the priest said. It was the same thing the tattoo artist had said when I got the memorial tattoo for Katie. A different tattoo artist that week burnt a line from Paul's epistle advising the Thessalonians to wait, to give thanks for the good news and burden no one with sins or charity, advice I have never followed in my life, onto my chest, then took a photo for his book, and a few months after that he carved it, he carved next to it a tree my niece had sketched on a piece of wrapping paper to celebrate our first Christmas together since Katie's death. Maybe I'll read the next section too, is that yeah, good? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah. It's true. I was incredibly pushy and clingy. I had to talk about everything all the time. Sometimes, most of the time, I had no idea who I was, unless I was her husband, a father, a real family man who tells stories and watches excellent television shows with his wife after the kids go to bed. It was all a package. She hated her part. She wanted the divorce to be done before the school year began, and she got mad, really mad, that I hadn't acted cruelly, I think, because she wanted to have a big fight right away at the start of summer so that everyone would see how hard it was for her so that she would have no choice but to leave. She had packed a bag in the car on the advice of a lawyer or friend who said, you never know how men are going to act when they feel threatened. Better safe than sorry. Most of her friends knew about the divorce before I did. She said she had decided it all at once. It had come like a revelation. I don't have to put up with this shit anymore which meant, I realized much later, that however we talked most every night about what could be changed and what couldn't, however she felt like she was drowning in quicksand and had gotten to the edge of the pit so that she could breathe free if she only got away, that this was her one chance to get away. If she didn't do it now, she would never live her one true life, her words, not mine. She had wanted to do yoga in Costa Rica and travel with friends to Palm Springs. I said, then do it today, this week. She said, I was missing the point. I only stood, I only understood much later. 
was what she meant. With me, none of it would happen. She would never be happy. She'd worked this out all at once and during all of the years we were married. And there was another section from the Fight Journal, the central poem from um, the chapbook um, that won the 2022 Rattle Chapbook Prize from John W. Evans. Um, so, so since you were, uh, you know, you, you wrote memoir, um, it, it made me wonder about fight, the Fight Journal poem. If it came from a, an actual journal um, and then was constructed into a poem, it, it, it seems like it could be because it's all, it, it has that really honest, I'm only talking to myself journal feel. Um, and it, did it come from, from prose? And, and how did you shape it into a poem, if so? Incredibly, my own journal writing is much whinier than this. I know it's hard <laughs> to believe, Tim, but it's much, much whinier and more self-pitying. And uh, it has a lot of exclamation points and capital letters. No, I, you know, the, uh, I didn't write it as, as, as uh, it, it's not a real journal. Um, I did write a big stretch of it in one once in one you know a period of a few weeks and then i put it away and didn't come back to it um but then i came back to it probably a year later or so when i had kind of a new idea that i hadn't thought about in a while and i sort of added that as a section and then i started to think about how to make it cohere and and the lines were long and short and delineation was was completely irregular there was no no you know, consistency to it uh and i kept thinking you know I, I think i said earlier poems that make us feel jealous because they're so good poems that make us feel ambitious um <clears throat> adrian riches from an old house in america was a poem i read i think in college that just stuck with me forever i took a copy of it with me to the peace corps i had it in every apartment i lived in um and it was, you know, it, it's a deceptively simple poem that happens in couplets uh, over you know, several pages. And the, the numbering of the sections is pretty, uh, uh, I don't want to say arbitrary, but I'll just say kind of arbitrary how she numbers the sections. They, they don't even end with sentences. Sometimes the sections go across, mm -hmm. sentences go across the sections. And uh, I started to use that principle, this I want to be Adrian Rich, you know, impulse to start to organize it. Uh, and as I did that, and I started to think in, you know, loosely in couplets, um, the poem just like, like a big block of marble, I just started carving off little pieces of marble here and there and a hand appeared and a forehead appeared and a foot appeared. And it just started to take shape in a really interesting way. And as I did that, uh, kind of the central idea of the poem, um, it, 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 the central understanding in my mind came forward. And I thought for the first time, and it, it's later in the poem, but I thought for the first time, oh, I I understand why I'm writing this. And and oh my gosh, I've figured something out about life, which, which um, makes it sound like all poetry has to be functional. I don't believe that at all. But I do really like when I write something that helps me to understand a question I don't know the answer to, an, an idea that I'm intimidated by, that really happened with this experience. And I thought that was um, that was kind of wonderful. And then once I had that idea, then it was a matter of, you know, where does the, where does the poem begin? Where does it end? So so I don't know if I answered your question, but no, it didn't come from a journal, but it did come from kind of a block of prose that I then started to think about more and more as a poem. Um, and then I, I also kind of had this feeling a little bit like uh, no, no one's ever going to publish this because it's it's long and it. I mean, I was so grateful that you did, but I, I thought this will never find a home because it's, it's long and it, it probably sounds a little bit like prose and it goes goes on quite 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 a lot. And um, 
I felt really fortunate that it, it found a home in the chapbook because I, I don't know how it could have ever found a home anywhere else. Yeah, it's the perfect the perfect use of a chapbook as a form, I think. It's like the perfect length for it. And the I think the the it's interesting, the musicality and and the the way it moves around in the other poems outside of the fight journal poem. Um yeah. I'm reminded of I think it's a um I think it's maybe a Vonnegut novel where there's someone who does like abstract impressionism with like cheap paint or something. And and it's just like a nothing but one color that they got from like Sherwin Williams, um, and and but then um, underneath is this like elaborate like secretly is this elaborate mural that's like super intricate and realistic and nobody in the world could paint it, and and that's sort of what gives permission for the simplicity of the other thing too that the, the skill was there and then ignored for the rest of the painting. Um, I, I might be just butchering that memory from some well, other like, book. That's but, like that. That image on the cover of Dennis Johnson's uh, selected poetry, collected poems. It, it's the um, oh, I'm going to get the title wrong, but but it's it's uh, uh, outsider art. It's this guy who worked at, at an assembly factory, I believe, at a Ford assembly factory in Michigan, who just built this beautiful room-sized piece that uh, that was just you know constructed from ordinary materials. But it's it's absolutely magnificent when you look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so so the it it really as contrast, I guess it makes the authenticity and the simplicity of the big central poem stand out even more, you know, with the uh, with the complexity of the other poems going on, like lyrically. And so I think it's a it's a great use of that, too, which is why I didn't want to get rid of the the poems that that sort of bookend the, the book. Um, uh, there's a question I wanted to ask too. And Nate Jacob beat me to it here. He says, um, "Was there ever a concern in the writing process pro- providing both the he said and the she said?" I love it, but it seems like it might be fraught with danger for me. And and if you look at the reviews on uh, Goodreads, which is a lot of people leave reviews there, I think it's all five stars except for a few people who didn't like the fact that it's like a one sided story. And and I mean to me, I mean that that it's a one sided story is baked in. Even if you had a she said, it would be one sided. It would just be a fake one side. So so that was never an issue for me. But I wonder how much you thought about that, about how you were only presenting one side, and um, you know, your ex wife will probably read this book. It's all over the place, and um, you know, and and what do you think of that about only presenting one side of the story? You know, th- there's. It's I'm sympathetic to the criticism. I mean, it's a reasonable criticism. I, I hear it. And I, I, I you know, don't want to oppose someone who has carefully read the book and, and had a thoughtful take on it. Um, I think a, another danger that maybe would be presented with with writing someone else's perspective into the poem would be to. Uh, I probably don't have the authority to speak for my ex-wife's subjectivity. And if I were to, you know, come in and say, this is how she felt beyond things that she said to me, uh, or things that were said out loud, I mean, which is, which is in the poem, you'll note, I, I am careful to only ever cite things that I heard said out loud, or things that I imagine, and I acknowledge that I'm imagining them or, or, or creating them in my own mind, but I, I wouldn't want to impose onto her subject, you know, it's like, I don't want to mansplain her perspective on the divorce that mm-hmm. seems like a cardinal uh error um and i think also you know j- just uh one of my favorite uh poems is is you know browning's fra lippo lippi which is a, a deeply deeply subjective monologue about a marriage and and the role that religion plays in an artist's life but um but you know in that in that uh dramatic monologue 
he is very careful to uh, to only have his subjectivity articulated. And 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 I think that probably the through line to all of that is that uh, that when we start to say, um, I know what someone else is thinking, I know what someone else is 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 feeling. Uh, we, we we run the risk of writing fiction because we we don't have a, a, a window into someone else's brain. I I would say though that I don't think the poem is without critiques of me or my failings. I think the poem is is very critical and kind of directly acknowledging of the things that I did wrong, was perceived to do wrong, was was perceived to do that were you know awful. So uh, in that way, I think there is uh, there is a representation of the perspective, but but it's 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 limited to what I can say with scrupulosity uh is is true mm -hmm. i don't yeah. know did i answer that question no i think you answered it great okay. um and, yeah. and gwendolyn soper says uh, like writing a memoir perhaps it, if anyone takes issue and says that's not the way i remembered it the author can say it's the way i remembered it you know and, and right. it's, you know if you have one perspective then it's just honestly your perspective and the honesty of the book is what stands out so it, it you know it fits perfectly for me um let, let's do another poem from that long sequence sure um, let's do, uh, let's do on, on page 32. Um, I'll, I'll read the last two sections of, of this, um, of this poem. Uh, and, and I'll just say that Bill, uh, in section 30 is, is a friend who's mentioned a couple of times in the poem in case you're hearing this for the first time. 11 years ago, we married. Soon it will be 12, 15, 50. It was always the kind of time I marked in error as achievement. I dated a woman after that and then another woman. The time came when I did not think at all that I had lost something or that something continued in my heart beyond my boys. That gift no other life could have brought me anywhere else, which would not be this life in which I grieved the loss and grieved again. I felt this way after my first wife died eager for consolation, and perhaps my second marriage was the consolation I sought in excess of what I'd lost the first time, a consolation that ended without grief, an ex-wife alive in the world who would not compete for my affections, who wanted our marriage to end when it did. I prayed to let that go too, or tried to let go, a boy in the small, playful body of a man, three boys in fact, already becoming men, who would learn to love too with imperfection, but clear of any buoyant sense, the world owed them something else or owed it to them for all of a life. Bill called right after the divorce. Your first book, he said, was Young Widower. The second was, should I still wish? Maybe you should just call the next one, nope. I'm against epiphanies, but I'm still working like hell to find one. So that's why mommy was sleeping in the guest room, Walt said finally, as I carried him back downstairs from his bedroom. Yeah, bud, I said. That was it. And that's the, the last uh, section of the central poem, the fight journal. Um, so um, where was it? Um, I want to read the rest of the question. Deborah T. asks, um, um, since the fight journal ended up being functional, you said, uh, what did you learn from writing it? It was a, it was a good question. Um, the, I mean, 
the poem expresses it all. But but if I were to, to try to distill it and be be reasonable, um, I think I say this earlier in the poem. I, I think that the functional lesson might have been um, that very quickly after I was widowed, you know, uh, I f fell into a magical kind of love with an old friend who became my second wife. And I think that she very was was very uh, rightly uh, moved by the idea that she could save an old friend. And I was probably very eager for life to move on and, and to be saved. And I think that we both went as fast and as hard as we could at, at something we wanted, which was this idyllic life together. And I think we, you know, maybe achieved it for a while, but, but the, the fantasy might've exceeded the, the reality. You know, th there was a, um, oh gosh, there was a TV show I was watching recently, Party Down, the new season of Party Down of all shows. But, but, you know, in, in it, someone accounts for the divorce by saying our marriage was like a fairy tale. And then they say, because it was a fairy tale, it wasn't real. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think it, there are worse errors to commit in life. But um, I think we both were really seduced by the magical quality of what it would mean to marry. Um, and we were incredibly fortunate to have the amazing three boys we have and love together. But uh, that fantasy might have exceeded reality in some ways that were kind of fundamental to being alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really well put. And was it in the process of writing the poem that you discovered that? Or do you think it was like your no, own absolutely. thoughts surrounding it? Yeah. No, it was it was in the process of revisiting the poem a year or so before I sent it to you um, that I had that that thought while looking at it. And and I don't you know, I think, again, I have to be careful. This isn't journalism. This isn't a, a, a deposition. This isn't a, a formal record. But I, I do think sometimes you write something down on the page and it's so much smarter and more insightful than anything you say in conversation or think to yourself or write in a journal. And then for me, I'm just like command S as fast as possible, like save it, save it, you know, print it, don't let it be destroyed in the, you know, whatever. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's that's something that I, I'm sure anybody who's paying attention to this right now uh can empathize with can can uh recognize which is when you write something and you go oh my gosh i would never have had this exact thought unless i had written this exact series of words in the way i did and that is something i chase in writing and very rarely ever grasp but in this moment i think i did and it it really locked into place an understanding for me that felt it was not blamey it was not judgy it was not uh it was not mean. It was not uh, score settling, but it was very true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that kind of of self revelation. Mm -hmm. Maybe that the left brain putting into words what the right brain knows. That kind of thing, or or you know pulling out into the surface the subconscious, um, or pulling out of the ether the collective conscious. I don't know. Whatever that is is the thing that interests me in poetry, and, and so it works that way. When that works, it's hard to think of poems that I care about that don't do that. Right. And you mentioned um, you know poems don't have to have a function. Um, when you were talking earlier. Um, so, so how, why, how does a poem work if it doesn't have a function like that? Um, can you, can you elaborate more on that? I'm just curious what you meant. Or are you just trying to be nice? <laughs> no, no, I think there are, uh, you know, uh, um, the, what's the green fuse poem by, uh, um, oh, this is terrible. Uh, Dylan Thomas. Um, you know what I'm talking about? It, it, it 
Actually, there I don't. are. Okay. Uh, well, I'm not going to Google it. So this this shows the absolute limits of my knowledge, which is very very uh, shallow. But no. But I mean, I think there are poems that uh, in um, in writing they they capture a, a lyricality that feels magical, and and it, and it it has very little to do with sense making. Um, there are are uh, poems that. Um, dramatize a moment but sustain an ambivalence all the way to the end and and, and you know and so so there are there are, and there are poems that i love that uh, and clearly i almost know the title of one of them but uh <laughs> no but there are poems that i absolutely love that, that do that uh and i think that those are those are of a oracular lyric tradition um that isn't nearly as didactic as the the kind of writing that interests me yeah but, but i see a lot of poets doing and i i marvel at a lot of their poems. That's right. I mean, to me, I would just say that that's like, and the poem is the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. And I don't know that poem, actually. Maybe we'll read it on the open mic later. But um, but but to me, that's like the a poem like that, like you describe anyway, or like some, you know, some great like E. Cummings poems that I love, or there's people that leap far, Wall Stevens. The Cantos, right? I mean, yeah. I yeah. Mean, you know. I feel like those are just the, the fringes of sense making. Like they're pushing as far as into chaos as sense can do, but it still feels to me like all the same thing. So I don't know. I think um, I know poems, poems are devices of understanding and, and empathy, and I think it. I think it's hard to get away from that that definition of having a function to do that. So I don't know. Interesting to me to think about. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I've written the type of poem I'm describing. Uh-huh. You know, on, so I I I might just be imagining an ideal. You know what I mean? That, that no, I think you have, or, or maybe I mean. Um, you know, I was talking to um, Eric Campbell, my friend, the other day while I was shoveling snow, and uh, he was talking about how he said he he don't he doesn't think he'd ever written a poem because he's only written like a vertical argument, is how he put it. And uh, do you feel that way? Do you do you have? Because to me, the poems, um, the the first and last poems, especially in the book. Um, feel like they're driven from that lyrical space where you don't know where you're going and it's like creative, like throwing paint around and then, oh my God, look at what I just did. Do you have a sense still of that, um, almost that, you, that you're writing a, a vertical essay, like he would say, that you have an argument that you're like wanting to put forth in words in that in that shape? I think that smallness is something that we that is very underrepresented in contemporary poetry. Smallness, pettiness, uh, uh, uh moments where we're not our best self you know these are not as um as 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 spoken with with authority and conviction as as they might have been uh in previous generations there's an ugliness in the last poem in this collection that i absolutely love because it 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 does speak the truth um it just doesn't speak a particularly flattering truth um that that poem is fireline i think you're referring to mm-hmm. um, and, and it's it's born of literally uh in you know at, at a small moment in my life of taking great joy and thinking that this this uh this family cabin might burn down and and uh and it's it's you know it's not uh it's not flattering but it's but it's very true and i think the truth that it articulates sort of like the first poem um there there's a, a truth to it there's a truth to the ugliness that that shouldn't be suppressed or sand it off so that I come across as, you know, a great guy or something like that. And so um, both of those poems were hard to write because they they touched on complicated emotions. But I think uh, there there's a joy, you know, there's a, a, a Philip Larkin joy. There's a, a Allison mentioned previously, Tony Hoagland, I think, wrote a poem like Reasons to Survive November is a great example of that. 
Um, he has that line, and I hate those people back from the core of my donkey soul, and my hatred makes me strong, and my happiness would kill them. I mean, that's no one in their right mind wants to think they have those feelings, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but maybe I'll read Fireland. Yeah, let's. I think we have time for two more poems. So, and there's three left in the book. That's the thing with the chapbooks; we can get through most of it. Would be um, really. Yeah. One of the one of the poems is gonna be very mad at me that I didn't read it afterwards. <laughs> so this is uh, Fireland. And when I heard the two cabins might burn down at the same time, or maybe even the same day, I rooted for the fire. Like many Californians, I followed with great precision and attention the interactive up-to-the-minute digital maps that showed a progression of devastation past the water's edge of the, of the popular tourist destination where my ex-wife family had, le had leased summer cabins since the 1920s, where even that spring they had gathered to enjoy the beautiful pristine wilderness of land the state said belonged to no one. It was a technicality, that outrageous claim renewed every 10 years by legacy, a claim I had once enjoyed in an elaborate festival of coming together we called a marriage. 10 years, then somehow faster and less forgiving, the controlled burn of divorce that took it back. It took only a few months to reach the woods and the lake. The second cabin was half the size of the first and much closer to the fire line. All it had to do was catch one spark near the composting toilet and the surrounding cabins would tremble. Unfair, that spark that every day kept not catching as fist-sized embers crowned the trees. It was the old growth. I knew they'd fight the hardest. I had fought against it for years, the impossibility we might still love each other. We might reclaim together the things she did not want me to have. So I imagined it myself. Every day the fire took a little more. Great grandma pummies, game trophies, Uncle Chum's Turkish rugs, Puck's first editions, all swept up into the pyrocumulus and out across state line with every last remnant of these families and what they cherished. But the redwood decks and lead glass windows, the rock falls and surrounding acres of old growth forest hung in as sturdy as my dog's chin on my knee. He watched me watch the screen. When it was time to walk, the sky had changed to orange, then blue. Then the wind shifted, capricious and weary of the granite. The people returned. Their cabins were there. In the city around the lake, bears had broken in and filled their bellies with syrup and thawed steaks. In early hibernation, a carcass every few yards stuck in the mud with singed or infected paws. Who is left to love what is gone if it belongs to no one else? Who dares warm his hands over the ash or rub his chest with the spite-tongued black, murmuring, mine, still mine, you do not belong to someone else? And that was Fireline from uh, the Fight Journal. Um, so, you know, you're obviously someone who's very thoughtful and introspective, and you've been through this divorce now, and so many people listening are going to be going through it for the first time, um, you know, haven't yet. Or um, so, so do you have any advice for how to deal with it, how to, how to make it work as, as fruitfully as possible given the circumstances? Gosh. Um, I, I think that, that the process of surviving many different kinds of loss is fundamentally the same. Um, you lean on the people who love you. Uh, 
and the people who love you step forward and and, and take care of you. Um, you know, my 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 parents, who I mentioned in the acknowledgments, were tremendous tremendous resources to me emotionally. Um, friends, uh, my great uncle, second cousin, I don't know, somebody distant in the family had a line that I thought was so great, which is he called it the pit. And he said, you know, when you get divorced, you go into the pit for a few years and uh, and then you just hope that you climb back out. And I think that there is, um, you don't think you're in the pit and then you kind of start looking at the the, the, the life you're leading and the choices you're, you're making and you start to think, oh yeah, I'm kind of in the pit. But it's also a tremendous opportunity to 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 change things, uh, and 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 to you know grow in a new way. Whether it's like stumping a rose or, or you know an olive tree or something that just if you if you cut it down low enough, it, it will grow back and it will grow back as something new and beautiful. And I think that uh, if you're in that position of going through something like a divorce, um, it, it it's it's not bad advice to uh to practice the simplest forms of self-care and to try to accumulate those into whatever your new life is going to be i mean for me it was gardening uh for me it was a kind of a oversized commitment to parenting and to to family life i mean i i was already well invested in that but um and to spending time alone and all of those have have uh chances to do things I would never have done uh, when I was married, probably why I got divorced, but, but still things that, uh, that are good opportunities. So, so it's like that Rahm Emanuel line, like, don't let, don't ever, you know, let a crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. And it sounds cavalier and it sounds glib, but I do think there's a tremendous amount of meaning in, in taking stock and saying, uh, whatever this is, it's going to be something different. And so I might as well start, start, doing those things on a very small level that will that will be the new life mm -hmm. baseball uh uh you know with the pennant up in your bedroom i don't know but you know, it's like, like the, these little things that uh that over time become very meaningful and uh and and then you're suddenly whoever you are next mm -hmm. yeah really well put and you know there's a way that that a divorce is is a death too because it's a death of a worldview and so it's not surprising that you know, your reaction and, and the way you have to deal with it is similar. So really well said and, and so true as people are saying. And, and people love that last poem, by the way. Everybody's saying amazing and, and the, 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 the metaphors there. And, and Dick Weisheimer says, this is the poem that makes me feel utterly inadequate to the practice of poetry. Um, he's the guest next week, so hopefully not. <laughs> but um, um, but, but I, we want to finish out with one last poem. Um, and we have like two left, I think. Um, which one do you want to f close out with? Oh, man. Well, um Gee. Uh, it, I like them both. I'm going to read Lakeville because okay. that was um, that that one might be a little more uh, heartfelt, a little less uh, lib. Um, you know, the thing you just said was interesting. I, I I'm not. I'm sorry to pause. I, I but I'll say this: it's it's the death of a worldview is so correct, and mm -hmm. it's it's I denied that reality for quite a long time. But it's, it, there's also in a divorce, there's someone walking around in the world who just the way I always gallows humor. But you're just like, oh, no, they just don't want me. <laughs> they want to be with someone. Mm -hmm. like, they want to be happy in the world. Just not with me. You know, and, and it's it's uh, 
And that's, that's different from the kind of uh, feeling that follows a loss, you know, which mm -hmm. is that they're alive in the world. Um, they just don't want to be with you. Yeah. Okay. This is called Lakeville. Uh, Lakeville. Summer in Chicago. Day five with the cousins. You are with your sister at a different lake. When you come home, we will divorce. We've not told the boys who are running to the edge of Lake Michigan and back up the hill playing a game of war with three sides. They are just old enough. I no longer worry they will survive. The lake is low in June. I show my sons the first place I took you to show you something about my life. Concrete slabs that press the campus footprint in a shape of water winged in grass. This place of anniversaries where something now will not be remembered. I know we sat together much farther down the lake fill near the beach. There was a feeling of first seeing the lake that I wanted to describe to you, how the ice and snow made places firm enough to start in any direction. One night, I nearly walked to Wisconsin with a friend. On the bright ice, we traced the jeweled campus and the water beneath us made no noise. The water in the lake does not rise this close to shore. It only comes and goes, trapped in places where it keeps making the same mistakes. Our oldest son, who looks the most like me, calls me over to a fresh painted rock. Is this the place you said to spread your ashes? He remembers his great grandfather's funeral and the giant bowl of ashes in your closet. Yes, I say. His brother starts crying. What is written on the slabs makes them beautiful. Marriage proposals, half rainbows, bits of verse from yearbooks. Not all those who wander are lost. We love the things we love for what they are. Near the path, I stopped to take a photo of these last days before the divorce. Three boys facing the water in soccer jerseys. Our youngest son is nearly floating across a blue sky. His brother is jumping between the rocks across the water. What is written on these stones can be read clearly, even in winter, under the ice. And that was Lake Phil, on one of the latter poems from the Fight Journal. John, thanks again for being a guest. I mean... Yeah, thank you, know, you. Doing uh, you know, doing the chapbook series, I'm always reminded every time that, that what we're really looking for is is books that are memorable. You know, we were we're going through right now, and and it's like which ones stick with you the most after you've read them and make you want to read them again. And having you know, I get that it's it's fun because I get to have the submission phase, then I read it again in the production phase, then it comes out and I read it again, and then I have you again. So it's like four different times I get to revisit the book in a in a sort of a fresh way. And it's just as memorable every time. I'm glad you, you shared that with us and, and chose to do so. Um, you know, really moving book and important for a lot of people, I think. So thanks for sharing it. And uh, thanks for, for being a guest today. Tim, it was uh, the most magical feeling in the world to get your call, which I, which I sent to voicemail because I was teaching, but, um, and then to listen to the voicemail. And I, 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 it's really worth, uh, it's really important to me to say that your uh, editorial guide, stewardship, care, you know, all of that was... Um, was extraordinary and you're you're uh quite a talented editor but also you you clearly uh convey these works into the world in a really meaningful way and uh, i i just hope you know how how grateful i am and i'm sure i it is i'm not the first person to feel that way so thank you for 
for Rattle and for publishing this book and for being such a such an extraordinary and caring editor. It's really, really special. Oh, thanks, Dan. And I should say that this was probably the least edited book that we had. <laughs> I think there was like two typos. And I decided not to screw it up by, by changing anything. And I told you not to screw it up by changing anything. That's all I did. Well, that was good advice, though. <laughs> yeah. you know? well, well, thanks so much, John. Great meeting you um, and, and talking to you today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yep. Take care. And it was John W. Evans, uh, The Fight Journalist's newest book. Um, you can find all of John's work at his website, johnwevans.com. Everything just like it sounds, johnwevans.com. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to uh, the open lines tonight. And uh, the open lines go like this. If you'd like to participate, email your poem right now to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. I'm going to get the Zoom link that me and John were just on. And um, I'm going to paste that into the Zoom, uh, or the Zoom link onto uh, YouTube and Facebook. And you can pop on only if you'd like to share a poem. Uh, we have prompt poems you could share. You, have, you can share poems about current events, stuff you've published recently, anything you want, something you wrote last night or this morning. Anything you'd like to share, email it first to openmic at rattle.com, then follow the Zoom link. But if you only just want to listen and enjoy all these great poems, all you have to do is sit tight right where you are. We're not going anywhere. Um, just uh, sit back and you can the best place to watch is always YouTube and Facebook because then you can see the poems as people read them always a lot of fun to do so sit right where you are I'll be right back with the open lines and we're back thanks for waiting uh, now the prompt for this week was to it was based on Rachel Custer's book or just inspired by Rachel Custer's book which um, had so many persona poems that um that book, Flatback Sally Country. And so we thought we'd do some persona poems, but it was the second week in a row for persona. So what we thought we'd do is personify a place where you've lived as if it were a character sketch of a real person. So that was the prompt for this week. Uh, personify a place where you've lived as, a, as if it were a character sketch of a real person. I guess I should show that as we talk about it. Um, so my prompt, so I live in Wrightwood, California, um, which is interesting in a few ways. It's, it's in the woods, and it's right in the middle of... Um, Los Angeles at the same time. I mean, it's like 30 miles as the crow flies, flies from L.A., but we're also in the middle of the Angeles National Forest, and it's like you could hike for days and not, not reach civilization. Um, and it's also interesting because the PCT comes right through here with all those hikers. Uh, you know, the, if you watch Into the Wild, Into the Woods? No, Into the Wild, the Cheryl Strayed book, um, that is uh, the PCT, which is right up, up there. Um, and so I thought I'd personify the town and the, and the interesting way that we approach life here, because we sort of want to be connected and disconnected at the same time, I think, uh, through a, a hiker. And so here is my poem, Through Hiker. Through Hiker. An old man, or is he young, stumbles down the mountain, nimble though he is. He carries all four needs on his back, nylon tent folded neatly as a parachute, a bar and a bear bag, water flask, and bedroll bouncing. He doesn't need the little town he's headed toward. Isn't there art enough in his eyes? Aren't there poems in the pine cones? The past is a skin that covers every inch of him, softer than the finest dust, invisible as indivisible. But soon his belly will be full of beer and his ears with the bangings of a local band. He'll head home early through the shadows of the sycamore, back up the winding ruts of the acorn trail, make his bed on a higher ridge, laying himself on a layer of wood smoke, the stars above and the porch lights far below, equidistant, equally haloed in the haze, equally reachable. So that is my through-hiker personification poem. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Let's go first to Nate Jacob, who was the first one in this week. Hey, Nate, how you doing? 
<laughs> well, you were born ready, I think, is a proper uh, it's a way to put that. So <laughs> thanks for being here. Not a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so what did you do this week? I got a prompt poem. I had, I've been traveling for two weeks. I had no intention of writing. But as I sat waiting for my eight-year-old uh, at his dance oh. class, uh-huh. uh, one just kind of fell out of me. So Excellent. Let's give it a read. I love the title already. So, <laughs> I, I, uh, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and this is a semi-true story. Mostly true. Called Omaha Ha Ha. Pastor Bob told us, in all seriousness, that being away, f- that being from the great city of Omaha meant we were only a couple steps away from a really good laugh at any moment. I saw my hometown then for the first time. I lived in Omaha or as he called it, Omaha, ha, ha. After the third ha, his laughter was real. Suddenly, Omaha was all laughter. Omaha lined the street I lived on. And when I crashed my fresh Bianchi headlong into a basketball pole, Omaha laughed me to shame, though not a soul had seen it. Embarrassment can be like riding a bike. When I went in for the first kiss and Melanie leaned way, way back, Omaha chuffed, then darkened with me a breathy and chesty silent exhale, cutting through the embarrassment as I ironically extended a hand instead. Last dates can be hard, too. Cruel Omaha nearly died laughing, tears streaming from its wide face, as my best pitching performance was rained out in the sixth inning, a scoreless tie never to be finished, and a never-really-promising career drowned out in a sudden summer deluge. I was done with Omaha then. Omaha laughed all the way to the bank. As soon as I had the chance to go, I fled that city, that laughing city, left it behind, never looked back, rarely returned. But that city had a way of pulling me back, setting the table for me, a near hero's welcome catered by a town I wanted nothing to do with. Leaving is hard, returning was worse. When my father died, suddenly and too soon, Omaha finally fell silent, reverent. Finally, we were lost as though the city itself had twisted life's roads and tossed the maps. But we didn't hear any laughter then. Omaha knew its place among us for that week, for those months even. We all can learn. Since then, Omaha has softened, practically sorry for the sins of the past. And now, like two aging has-beens, we can sit around, look back on it all, and laugh together at our own mistakes. Omaha offers no apologies, and I don't ask for one. Pastor Bob taught laughter, taught forgiveness, too. Oh, that was excellent. Wonderful poem, Nate. I really love that great character sketch of Omaha. It makes me want to like almost makes me want to go there anyway. Oh, it's flyover <laughs> country for a reason. But <laughs> it, it does is, a good but you know, I've never <laughs> been. I don't know. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Really great. I, lo- I love the title too. Uh, thanks. I'm glad you got that out. Thanks a lot. Yep. Take care. So, yeah, that was uh, Nate Jacob with uh, Omaha ha ha, and I-, I love the way that the last ha turns into actual laughter. Um, let's go next to Carla Schwartz. Hi. Hey, I'm Carla. so happy to be here. Glad and to have you. Um, thank you. And it's such an amazing night so far. And uh, so I took it literally the prompt mm-hmm. to write a, a persona poem 
from the perspective of Montreal. Uh And I used some French words uh, that I'll explain in the end, Uh I guess. Is that where you grew up, Montreal? Uh, No, I taught at McGill for three Uh years. Uh And so I lived there. It's one of the places I've lived. Uh Gotcha. Okay, let's see. Montreal. I'm real. I, oh, by the way, it's a shape poem, so it's sort of like a city. Okay. <laughs> I'm real. I'm sleek. I'm hip. I'm chic. I'm cool. I'm hot. I glow. I glide. I skate. I slide. I board. I ride. I bus. I rate, critique. I dance. I hop. I leap. I'm grand ville. I'm street, I'm ruelle, petite, I'm bagel, smoked meat, I'm frit, I'm mountain, marché, jardin botanique, I'm plateau, I'm carré, I'm clean, I'm neat, I'm mean, I'm old, I'm new, I'm young, I have two tongues, I have many, I'm city, I'm country, I'm regal, royal, I'm immigrant, debout, mes bras ouverts, Bienvenue. You thank. It's not nothing. I welcome. I'm snow. I'm quiet. I'm loud. I'm festive. I'm jazz. I'm film. Musée. Je tutoie. Toujours. Je t'attends. Bisous. Beautiful. I I wish I knew French, but that is a beautiful way to end that poem. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. So the last word means kisses. I send you kisses. Ah, and, oh, that's great. Um, and and the and the there's a joke in there that I just want to explain, which uh-huh. is not a real joke, but it's a jeu de mots, which is that if you're from France and somebody says merci, which means thank you, you answer them often de rien, and um, which means it was nothing. Mm-hmm. Ah. And it, but in Quebec. It's translated, you're welcome like I welcome you. It's the same word. They use the same word that we use in English. They do the same translation. So bienvenue means you're welcome like I welcome you to my country is also how somebody says merci, you say bienvenue. And so so I put in this joke here about that it's not nothing when somebody says thank you. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I I, talk, I can't remember who I was talking to, but they were very, they, they were just going on about the um the way they hate when, when people say, oh, thank you. And then someone's like, it's nothing, you know, like, like mitigating the, uh, the, the, the thanks itself, even in the, uh, in the act of it. So very interesting to hear that. Great, great pun in there too. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. Thank you so much. Yep. Take Good care. Night, everyone. Yep. That was Carla Schwartz with Montreal. I should say, um, you know, it's a, it's a one poem uh, maximum tonight. Uh, I think that might just be the case forever from now on because we have um, 15 people on the line now. We've just had a full house the last I don't know, a few months. So um, I think it's always going to be a one poem max, two page max, two will say. Let's go next to uh, Gwendolyn Soper, who had some nice comments on the on the YouTube thread. Hey, Gwendolyn, how are you doing? Doing great, Tim. So good to see you. Yeah, great to see you too. Yeah, Nate, Carla, great to hear your poems. And oh my gosh, John W. Evans, I have been waiting for this Rattlecast. That was incredible. Okay, so the poem I'm going to read is called Local Library. Um, And this is a poem, since 2020, I've been part of a little writing group, and they're mostly based in Aberdeen, Scotland. Mm -hmm. And they've got some local libraries that the their budget cuts and they want to close their libraries for good. And so I 
contributed this poem for a protest they did the other day. Here uh, goes. I'm having trouble finding it. Did you email it to me? No, I couldn't find the email in the um, chat. Okay, well, that's okay. No problem at all. Uh, well, yeah, why don't we just listen to it? We'll just listen to it this time. So go ahead and read it, and we'll put you on the screen okay. and just listen. Yeah. All right. It's okay. um, five quatrains, maybe six. Local library. I've worked in a library, and let me tell you this. My job was vital. Not just fielding people's questions, lending books, but smiling, lending an ear or sharing quiet conversation with society's most isolated and vulnerable. One time, a young medical student arrived, overwhelmed by her new life, and she found solace among stacks while her baby slept. Another time, a widower so shy that he could barely speak whispered to me that he loved the beauty of his old-fashioned alarm clock. If he were here today, I like to think he'd have set it for this hour, this minute, to wake us up, to rattle our bones with its annoying sound, to make us jump out of our skin, to do everything we can to quickly save this library that's been a haven to our community for years. Uh, great rhythm in that and great uh, protest poem. You should publish it somewhere locally and, and hopefully maybe it'll help. Oh, thanks, Tim. Um, but what was that called again? What was the title? Local Library. Local Library. Yeah, well, thanks so much for sharing that, Gwendolyn. That was great. And great comments, too, on the on the chat. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yep, take care. Yeah, that was Gwendolyn Soper with our local library. I think we're going to go ahead, not quite in the order people are here, because uh, Spartacus is here. Um, he's probably in Greece, so it's probably really late for him. Let's go to him first. And then uh, there's two either first-timers or um, haven't been a while, Michael Ballard and Tanish Carr. We'll try them next. So we get uh, some people. Spartacus, are you there? Hi. Hey, Spartacus, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's a bit early here in Cyprus. It's like half past four in the morning, so it's not the best time to see me. Yeah, exactly. I know. That's why I wanted to have you on right away, so you can go to bed or, or get up, or I don't know what you're doing. Um, you, your camera's yeah, on. I don't know if you, want it, if you want to turn it on, but um, either way is fine. Um, but what do you want to share with us today? Yeah, um, so from when I was living in England, um, you know, one of the particular things that stayed with me was... Um, starting writing poetry um, after a festival of poetry in Bristol. Ah, so I yeah. guess um, I changed a lot of cities, but um, a city that stayed with me was Bristol. And one of the reasons that stayed with me was because um, it was a vibrant city. There were a lot of cultural events, um, a lot of poetry, a lot of artists, paintings, um, I remember even when I was looking um, to rent a house there mm -hmm. and I met an artist and he saw me around his house. His house was even better than a gallery. I mean, he was something like a painter and he had everything inside oh, wow. um, his house. And this is something that stays with you. And I guess... Um, um, when you are thinking about the city, you have different options where you associate with different poets. Um, this was a, a time when I was experimenting with poetry. Um, so I used to 
read different poets, and my poems were like different forms. Mm -hmm. Some of them were a bit successful, and some of them, they were not so nice. Um, so my title of the poem is um, The Center of the Universe. And this is, this is because I had a colleague, he used to say, oh, Bristol, th this is the, the center of the universe. We were uh, like in a different city. Uh -huh. And I remember it after a lot of years when I went there. That's great. Let's hear it. Um, right. The center of the universe. How far would you travel for me, Bristol? Does it matter if I win or I lose you, Bristol? I'm going away, Bristol. Love is a lie. Maybe I need to lie to my truth. Love song is every bird song that travels through the sky and touches a heart. Bristol, do you remember my postcode now that I'm gone? Are you still reading Bikovsky? You were sitting next to me. Everyone, Bristol, wrote one line of a poem in the Festival of Poetry when we first met. Except me. You were one of the love poems of Neruda. You were the words that I won't be able to tell you, but I want to remember. Nothing more. Oh, that's beautiful. And a Neruda-type style, the center of the universe. Thanks so much for sharing that, Spartacus. I love that. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye. Yep, yep. Always great to hear from you. It was the center of the universe by Spartacus and Agnostorus. Let's go to uh, Michael Ballard next. Hello. Hey, Michael. How are you doing tonight? I'm I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So, what do you've got for us? Uh, well, okay. It's not a prompt poem. It's um, something I've been working on. Uh, I may change the title, but right now it's called "I Don't Think So." Okay, let's hear it. Standing in the middle of nowhere, I look up into the dark canopy of an infinity, partially relieved by the panoply of pinpricks glimmering above. And beneath this shroud of immensity, I shiver. An appreciation of my insignificance, the unbearable lightness of my being. But why does the infinite firmament deserve its fearsome glory? Can it embrace the multitudes of Whitman? Can it bask in the transcendence of a flawless golf swing? Can it relish the toe-curling quiver that comes from slurping the succulent slug and briny nectar of a Maine oyster? Can it tremble against the warmth of a lover's breath? Can it know and endure the cascading shards of loss? No cosmic filament is going to savor the scent of a rose or curse the prick of its thorn. The cosmos will never be able to treasure its own terrifying beauty. Only we, we fickle ticks on the height of eternity, have the power to give the indifferent incandescence its due. It should thank its lucky stars. How very and I have a footnote. Yeah. The Unbearable Lightness of Being is the name of a book by Milan Kundera. Yeah, definitely. Um, great book too. And it's, it's yeah. funny cause the, the poem I, you know, I just have AI on the brain, but it reminds, it reminds me too of, you could be spoken to artificial intelligence too, cause we still have to be the eyes and the ears of the universe anyway. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Well, very interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that, Michael. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Yep. Goodbye.
Right. So Michael Ballard, with I don't think so. Um, let's go to Tanish Carr next. Tanish has been on a few times too, but not often. Hey, Tanish, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. It's great to see you again. So what do you have uh, that you'd like to share? Um, so I have this that's Visiting Memories. I wrote it um, maybe like last summer, um, but it's like it goes with the prompt a little bit. Okay. I'll put it up. Go ahead. Visiting Memories. My hometown growing up was rural. Now it has an Ikea. Cow fields next to soccer fields became strip malls called shopping centers. One of the last days of my last visit, I woke up to voices in the dining room. My sister, parents, brother in his room. After a night of her deep sisterly slights, cutting beneath verbal declarations of love, reminding me how she wanted me home, but didn't want me. The rage inside takes control. My voice echoes. Why don't you tell them how you visited me in Chile only to kick me out of your hotel room where I didn't even want to stay? She changes the subject, embarrassed of me. They follow her along. I wander that unseasonably warm December morning through the curved suburb, past 30-year-old lookalike houses into the connecting eccentricities built in the 70s. Facing Maria's old house, I turn right Pass Angie's down to the right. See Art humping the trees set off in the back at night after capture the flag the summer after sixth grade. I snake through to Andrea's, my first grade Pizza Hut bucket friend. Fine dining at Frisch's Big Boy for lunch. Just before Melinda's, my old babysitter, who stopped visiting us after her mother died. And I walk until John's, whose eye was shot with a BB gun in the seventh grade, his blinks stuttered from then on, to the end before the main road. Walking back, I subconsciously knew I would never visit again. A few months later, COVID hit, and I spent years living barely Intensely in remembering, now remembering only to forget. Yeah, very memorable poem. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, that was uh, Visiting Memories um, by uh, Tanish Carr. Thanks so much, Tanish, for sharing that. That was great. Yep. Take care. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Tanish Carr with Visiting Memories. Um, next, let's go to uh, Jerry Stevenson. Oh, you're on mute, Jerry. Okay, I'm on mute too now. There you are. You're looking good. He's sounding good. How are you doing tonight, Jerry? You know what? I'm, I'm about two notches above high average. Right ah, that's great. A great show. <laughs> yeah, Excellent. Enjoy it. And guess what came today in the mail? Oh, wow. It took that long. Wow. Well, I'm glad it made it. Now, since we're in Canada here, the mm-hmm. dog team was slow. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what happened was, it's springtime. Uh-huh. I fell a little bit in love today. Oh, wow. That's great. I did. There was a poem in there. 
I don't know how these people do it. So this is a rec- this is a response poem to Anne Kissy. Oh, see? that's great! Yeah, you emailed me this. Oh. I didn't have a chance to reply. I was going to tell you though that's that Anne's going to be the I guest. Would- I was almost stranded on a ferry. I dodged that bullet. Thank heavens. Well, Anne's going to be the guest on May 22nd, I believe. So she'll have a chance to uh, share that poem too. But I can't wait. But this one, I'm, I'm excited about this. It's in response to her poem uh, from your Irish tribute. Wonderful. I've been picking at them all day. But this one got me. Okay. Just grabbed me. and shook me. It's called Requires Thievery. I'll continue. Bless, curse my ghost. To the haunts, alleys, strays of old Dublin or County Clare. To set on curbs, barrows, squat the narrows, be splashed on wharfs with fortune ears to hear. So fine words to drift to the quill of Ann Casey. Down under, sorry, the down under banshee whaler of all Irish. Then vapor them west to my empty page. As money could not buy them, commerce could not trade them, I would never hold the skill to pen them. Uh, great tribute to that tribute poem, uh, tribute issue poem. Thank Thanks, Jerry. You know, it's, uh, you always hope that when you put out an issue, someone loves the poem that much. It's great to hear. It just, it just right now, got me. Yeah. Uh, excellent. <laughs> so I'm scrambling to get it to you because I was supposed to be in transit. And that all got changed around. And oh, perfect. So I get to sit back and watch the show. It's lovely. Excellent. Yeah, well, I'm glad you could. Hopefully your, your transit goes well, whatever that is uh, coming up. But, yeah. but yeah, yeah, thanks for being here. Good to see you, as always. All good. Thanks yep. so much, Jim. Yep. Bye, Jerry. Bye. So Jerry Stephenson with Requires Thievery. Um, if you're wondering about the Ann Casey poem, that was Thursday, or no, last Friday's poem on Randall.com. So just go to Randall.com, scroll back a few, and you will find it. Let's go to Brian. Like I said, she'll be the guest on May 22nd. She has a recent book out. Um, uh, like uh, Jerry mentioned, she's a Irish poet living in Australia. Um, so let's go up to Brian Sullivan next. Hi, Sam. Hey, Brian. How are you tonight? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. So what have you got for us? So it's a, a prompt poem. Um, it is a, not really a character sketch, though, but it's addressed to a place that I lived for a few years, my first academic job. That you will recognize the place. I definitely will. Um, I, I, unless it's Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Minnesota? Uh, or New no, York? not that one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are so cold. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, Very fitting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, regardless of how long it's been, my dark lady, old lady of snow, I still think of you often. Like when just once in a while, in deepest winter, frozen fingered, I once more scraped car windows free as I did twice daily in our driveway that rush read the slot under a gunmetal sky when you were my home. We threw out the ice scraper where we moved from you, just dropped it, our eyes dancing in the Wegman's goodwill bin, even though we knew there'd be a few frosty mornings in Maryland and we had no regrets when we bought a new scraper. Symbolism's worth more than that when you are twisting in the tunnels, thirsty for light and trying to be free of the tragic tyranny of the center. Too dramatic? Maybe. It was a job. Excuse my rudeness then, O Lady Eastman, Lady of Garbage Plates, standing in your own shadow, raining by the lake, 
we owe you after all. You didn't kill us. <laughs> that was great. A lot of nostalgia for me in there with that poem. With the, the I was going to apologize for being mean to your hometown, but yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, it deserves it. I mean, we got the um, Wegmans is great. And uh, <laughs> otherwise, it is. I don't know, definitely cold, definitely scraping that ice. And I was even worse. I, I lived close to Lake Ontario. That was kind of inland oh a little bit gosh. relative to where I grew up. So, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that. That was a fun trip down memory lane for me. And, and the UR, you know, for people who didn't know, the UR is the University of Rochester up there. You are so cold. And then, then the acrostic poem for people just listening. Thanks, Brian, for sharing that. Thank you. Yep. Take care. Yeah, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Brian. You are so cold. It is cold there. Wind whipping off Lake Ontario. Okay. Let's go to Mike Bales next. I don't know if it's Wisconsin cold. But let's um, see. <laughs> I knew that when I worked up there. Uh-huh. Uh, Wisconsin. Uh, one time we were working near Lake Geneva, and I went, geez, it's like I'm near a giant ice cube. It was. <laughs> it is. Deep. It is a giant ice cube. Um, I used to pine about a long time ago about not being in Minnesota or write, still write about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, if I sent you two versions, it's the most recent version. Yeah, I got version. it. Mm-hmm. I went to grade school, most of my grade school in St. Cloud, Minnesota. So there's a prompt poem, a persona poem. It's called From St. Cloud. The truth is I really love you, although I'm sure someday someday you'll leave and scorn my name. The mother of your friend who who lived across the street will tell your mother that it's good to be from St. Cloud. The key word is from. And they'll laugh over coffee. But let me say, I want you to be proud of me. Proud of how I rose from fields and prairies. Proud of how I've always been graced by the Mississippi as where it passed as a stream before turning into something great. I want you to be proud of winds so free they swept across fenceless yards, tumbleweeds that your mother said were once rooted in native lands of the Dakotas. And remember the granite carved from my soil of how it was used to build empires out east. Remember the four-lane highway as it led out of town on a Sunday drive of how it glistened as a mirage, a mirage you thirst for but never thirsted for but never reached. Remember your white ranch house as it rose from the ground in a subdivision so new that the fire department couldn't find it when a tractor caught fire in the garage of how the workers buried it to save its wooden frame. And the house, the one your cousins, aunts, and uncles on the farm had come to see. And they will be the ones who say goodbye when your father says he wants to seek his better dreams. Every night my streetlights um, blink as if I'm nothing more than a village, while Minneapolis two hours away is a star. Oh, very interesting. Another, I love these trips down memories of everybody. It's really interesting to see, you know, hey, perspectives looking back. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. As I'm Mike Bales with uh, from St. Cloud, St. Cloud, Minnesota, that is. And uh, last but not least, I believe, let me make sure, is uh, next week's main guest, uh, Dick Westheimer, is here. Hey, Dick, how you doing? Sorry to have you at the end of the show. We have you at the Beginning sometimes, the end sometimes, but uh, we got you for the whole hour next week. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, one of the nice things about being here at the end is I get to see everybody read as you know <laughs> in real time, so that's terrific. Um, I hadn't thought of it before this, but I have a 
a strong connection to Rochester in the 70s. Oh, really? Yeah, before uh, I was when, born, but yeah. When Kodak and uh -huh. Zero, you know, when the town was was a Alive. company yeah. town and thriving mm -hmm. and had a girlfriend who lived there and we went to Letchworth State Park in the wintertime. I was thinking of Letchworth in the wintertime when yeah. the waterfalls mm -hmm. are frozen and it's just beautiful up it, there. it really is it's a beautiful place i'd move back in a, in a second if it was that easy yeah it, it actually is a really great place despite the uh the frigidity of <laughs> of brian's yeah. poem yeah it's a little, <laughs> well which also matches it the other thing i, I wanted to, to share is i just uh, jimmy pappas has this series at seven o'clock on mondays mm -hmm. and uh Spilat was the feature this time reading oh. her translated poems oh that's great yeah and it's, she's just transcendent as a translator. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. You know, maybe and, that's a great thing. Maybe I should steal Jimmy's idea and have her on as a guest just for translation. Because she, you know, she was on Rattlecast, I don't know, like a year and a half ago, maybe. Uh, but mm -hmm. her own work, because he had a new book. But but it'd be fun to have her translations, too. That's a great idea. Yeah, I, I think it would be wonderful. And one of the things I mentioned to her is that she's sort of like, holds these translated poems with actually more fondness than her own like oh, as she yeah. reads them it's like you know it, it it's almost like a different a different relation and she was only reading dominican poets yeah. uh which um which might have that she had translated it was wonderful yeah that's great we, we've had a couple of translation words too i think it's a great idea i think i'll have to have her as a guest so yeah thanks for that tip um so I have a little poem to read. I'll read from my poets respond a sonnet unequal to the equinox. Okay, let me pull it up and describe what it's about is why I'm pulling it up then. Yeah, it's sort of it's a sonnet unequal to the equinox. That that's 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 the best I can do. I I guess the one thing I can say is is that um um spring always surprises me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm on a farm with gardens and you know everything is it's it's this cycle, but every year it's sort of like, again, this happened. <laughs> was, is, yeah, and it's 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 like it's it's a um, it's this cycle that is constantly surprising. Yeah, that's a great so, way to look at. it. I look out the window and it's actually light at the end of the rattlecast, which has not happened in many many months. Although there's still snow everywhere and yeah, there's light still reflected off the are. snow, but besides that, it does feel yeah. nice to see light instead of darkness out there. Um, so here we go, a sonnet unequal to the equinox. On this breaking day of spring, my flesh still reaches for the earth. But unlike other times, I tread on this rolling river log of a world. On this one hour each year, I stand steady throw my arms to the air and prepare to be poured into the shape of the season. The toads in their wallows sing a bit louder tonight, use their rough magic to slow the earth and its spinning. I walk out on the fields and see Orion wink his red eye at me. He will go west for the rest of the year and I will remain plant by the moon, store summer's sun in the flesh of root-cellared squashes, raise the dead, and return to my treading. Yeah, excellent. I always love to see a sonnet. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. And uh, and we'll see you next week talking about um, A Sword in Both Hands, your new book that just came out, and, and other stuff, too. It'll be fun to be able to chat about your background as a poet. 
it's very short. So <laughs> well, that's the interesting. Hopefully, thing. we'll have other things. Well, yeah. we have lots. Well, we definitely do. Well, but yeah, looking forward to talking to you a lot more next week, Dick. Yeah. Yep. Thanks. thanks. Yep. Bye. bye. So that's going to wrap up the uh, the zooms portion of the show. We have a little bit of time, so I think we could do a couple poems um, by people who couldn't make it today. Um, first up, we have Katie Dozier, who has a um, a tiny haiku. We could do we could break the two poem rule because one's just a haiku. Let's uh, read this one. This is a prompt poem from Katie. Katie said, um, great show tonight. Wish I could read, but I have a horrendous cough. Um, here's a sonnet minus one and a haiku about divorce that seemed particularly timely. Divorce coup, she says. So let's see this. Meanwhile in rural Kentucky. Um, here we go. Meanwhile in rural Kentucky. Delmar is at it again, driving his John Deere to the drugstore. So country he makes the townsfolk feel downright city. His overall stink of wet tobacco dirt. His flannel shirt has bluegrass peeking out from the pocket. But buy him a malt shake and take his outstretched hand. Worry not about his missing teeth, the mountain dews strewn across his land. He'll be in the smoking section, lacing his cigarettes with sugar, making plans he'll never do about fording the Kentucky River. Yeah, excellent there, sonnet minus one form. Meanwhile, in rural Kentucky. And then the the quilly quickly, the divorce coup. Eclipse before a new moon, divorce. Eclipse before a new moon, divorce. Very interesting haiku there, too. Thanks for sharing those, Katie. Um, that is uh, two poems by Katie Dozier. Let's move on to... Who else has poems that's new? Um, Nibidita Karthik is here. Um, she says, I've written a prompt poem of a poem about my ancestor, or more precisely what my ancestors, say great-great-grandparents, would have told me. I have written this using rhyming couplets since I think that rhymed verse was more popular during that time. Interesting point there. So in keeping with the spirit of those times and to bring more authenticity to the advice my ancestors would have given me, here's my rhyming poem. Um, She's unable to attend because the live stream, unfortunately, is uh, during the start of the workday over in Indian right now. But uh, here's past versus present uh, with Nivedita's poem this week. Past versus present. Those days spent wishing we were grown up, just so we could wear heels and dabble in makeup. Now we wish we were young again, just so we could feel the joy of knowing no pain. Those days spent wishing the rain would go away, just so we could spend more time at play. Now we wish it would rain all day, just so we could feel less guilt about being cooped indoors all May. Those days spent wishing we could come home after a long trip, just so we could boast that we had been on a cruise ship. Now we wish we could go on holiday, just so we could be far, far away. So never live in or try to relive your past, for that way you'll tire of life so very fast. Just focus on the here and now, the present, and you'll see that everything is just that tiny bit more pleasant. Excellent. Love those rhymes. I love the, the repeat of the rain part. That was excellent. Past versus present by Nivity to Karthik. Thanks for sharing that, Nivy, as always. Let's go to, um, moving on down. Um, so this is, um, Amadeo Mangun Mendoza. She says, found your rattlecast to be informative, educational, entertaining. Hope this poem written with my mother as a persona gets accepted. Well, it's not really accepted. It's just whoever's here, um, and can share poems as much time as we can. But this is a poem about, um, Amadeo's mother, the flowers given. So since uh, Amadeo can't be here, I will read that for him. Here we go. 
The flowers given. Why well, believe so much that flowers win a woman's heart? Okay, then smell them, then even refrigerate them. But those slow-moving flowers will turn cold. What's best is be the flower. Plant yourself well. Have a hummingbird skitter backward above you in an echo of Beethoven's Ode to Joy linger. Rub your soles on the mat well before entering, maybe still muddied from the onslaught of rain. Then look at her eyes. Look, you know the hell where I came from, but I've changed. I'm like a paper sailboat plucked from a murky canal, dried up, and then sailed again on a rivulet flowing toward a magical mountain. Since I've met you, believe me, I love you, you must say. And as she examines your trail, close your eyes, prepare like insouciant grass ready for the cut, yet pray like a devoted gardener in lotus position. And as she goes to the kitchen, thinks it over, offers you a half glass of water from the deep well of her discerning, remember to see it as half full and not half empty, and you will know that whatever the answer, the very heart of the matter has been unfurled. This is advice given by my mother when she was already 18 years old, when I told her I was too to court a beautiful girl who was our, a neighbor of ours. Very interesting poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. few lines I really love in there, the, the half glass of water from the deep well of her discerning. That's really cool. So thanks for sharing that. Amadeo, that was uh, The Flowers Given, once again, by um, Amadeo Mangun Mendoza. Is there anybody else that we should share here? Um, yeah. Okay, there's one more to share here. This is a Susan Talley's. With a 60% chance of rain. This was a prompt a couple weeks ago, but let's do this. With a 60% chance of rain by Susan Talley. Do you have a couple more minutes? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, with a 50, with a 60% chance of rain, I call my stepmother when there is no room in my luggage for anything resembling a swimsuit. It's the bad mood taking up all the space. I planned the flight when it was all, yes, I can do it. Just pack one piece of clothing at a time. But with so many days of in-between, I think it's best to stay here. Any change to make it sooner is too soon. So far from honest reflection, from what there is and what can be, I squeeze out the word postpone, listening for disappointment. She says, I don't think you should do that, and understands then how change is hard. She used to say, just get your things together, and don't talk about hurricane season. And she reminds me to take an extra pair of shoes. Too many days from now and then, so far from honest reflection what there is, and what can be. That was uh, Susan Talley with with a 60% chance of rain. I don't remember what the prompt is what, that week. That was a couple weeks ago, and they all just kind of blend together for me. Um, so I'm not quite sure. Uh, but let's see. Okay, well, that's going to wrap up the show for tonight. Um, let's see. So the let's do the Saiku really quickly. And the Saiku is right here. It's based on this story. From the University of Alberta, actually. So Jerry Stephenson and some others that are Canadians will be happy to hear that. This is um, research right here. Uh, mild fever. If I can show it a little better. Here we go. Maybe like shrink it? Yeah, that's better. Okay. Mild fever. More shrink. That's better. Okay, there we go. That can fit. Mild fever. <laughs> Where is it? Mild fever helps clear infections faster, new study suggests. Research on fish, yeah, actual fish, shows that waiting before reaching for medications may be beneficial to humans. And this is one of those, I would say, in the no-duh department, because that's how you used to talk in the, in the 90s, you'd say no-duh. <laughs> but, I mean, we wouldn't have a fever 
you know, all throughout like, f you know, hundreds of millions of years of evolutionary history that, you know, all animals diverge from a common ancestor that far back have feeders to fight infection. We wouldn't have that if it didn't work. And so that's why I, for years, have never, unless I have a huge fever, I never, never take any um, fever reducer because you want the fever to get rid of the, the infection. Um, but this is not professional medical advice, of course. Um, I'm not a doctor. But I do not take, I don't take fever reducers unless I have to. And, um, but research here showed that if they infected fish, you know, I guess who cares about fish? They infected some fish with a virus and uh, they gave one set some fever reduction. They had the other set, um, not have fever reduction. They found that the 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 fish with fevers had a um, had a half the length of time with their illness as the ones that had their fevers reduced. So um, just avoiding aspirin or ibuprofen or whatever will, has a potential to really reduce the amount of time you uh, suffer from an infection. So there you go with that. And here is the psyche based on that. Um, here we go. Fever dream. Broken by the morning stillness. Fever dream broken by the morning stillness. That is your Saiku for this week, and that is the show for this week. As we've talked about many times, next week's guest of the Rattlecast is going to be Dick Westheimer, but the prompt is going to be um, inspired by John Evans, like we like to do. And the prompt is this. So John Evans, of course, the Fight Journal, has a journalistic poem in the middle. So I thought, what could we do with that? Write a series of small poems as journal entries this week. Each day, write about a small detail that you'd want your future self to remember. That's the key. So, so think throughout your day of like, what would you want to remember about this day? Write a very small poem about it. Then you'll have seven small poems. They can be haiku. They can be any other kind of short poem. I mean, they can be as long as you want, but you know, don't be, don't be too hard on yourself. You can make them kind of short. But that's going to be the prophecy. Write, write a little poem every week about something that happened that day that you would want to remember in the future. And so maybe that'll... It'd be a nice practice to, to notice things to appreciate in our days, too. So I thought that'd be fun. That's going to be the prompt for next week. And next week's guest, like I mentioned, is going to be Dick Westheimer. And everybody on here knows who Dick Westheimer is. He has a new book out, A Sword in Both Hands. Um, he's been a finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize, been in a few times in Poets Respond. I think two issues of Rattle 2 at this point. Um, and he always knew him on the open lines. Um, as he mentioned earlier on the show, he's a recently, um, you know, only started doing poetry relatively recently, several years ago. So we'll talk about that, what he used to do before, and um, learn a lot more about Dick in the process. So that's Dick Westheimer, Rattlecast number 188, next Monday, April 3rd. Did I write the wrong date? Is it April 2nd? No, it is April 3rd. Okay, April 3rd, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.